from Estonia and welcome back to the Startup in Estonia podcast produced by Startup Estonia. I'm your host, Adam Rang, and in this season, we're taking a look at different aspects of building a startup with expert advice from startup founders who have already been through it. We want to know what they did right, but just as importantly, what they did wrong. And in this episode, we're going to focus more specifically on the type of mistakes made by first-time founders. Because, you know, we all make mistakes. I'm a first-time podcast host, and uh, we've already done two episodes for the season. So I asked people for feedback about what mistakes I've been making and what I can do better. And one of them is that I talk too fast during the introduction. So... I'm trying to correct that right now. Um, but, you know, I just get too excited about the guests we have and the topics and uh, so many questions I want to ask. And today is no exception. So our guest today is Tavi Tamkiri. Tavi is a first-time startup founder himself, but also has a lot of experience from inside Estonia's most successful startups. He played a key role in building Skype and TransferWise and is now the CEO of his own startup, Salve, which is helping companies fight financial crime and in doing so, helping other startups avoid mistakes in their governance and compliance. Uh, so I really want to learn more about this. So welcome to the show, Tavi. Hello, and thank you for inviting and thank you for this great intro. Like, it was really interesting to hear what you're thinking about me. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for coming. And um, so we're talking about mistakes, but like from an outsider's perspective, the companies you've been involved in seem to have done everything right while you've been there so uh but maybe we can find a bit more behind the scenes uh, about what happened um and actually Tavi, can i start by clarifying you have four children is that right yes and, yes. and you've taken parental leave uh, for those children as well like how do you um i have one child and i find that uh, a big challenge balancing kind of work and family life how do you balance four children with your your career well yeah it's a good question it's not easy to find the right balance uh, Mm, it's um but at the same time it gives a lot of uh, skills and tools actually to to organize the rest of the life as well because if i know that my i need to take care for my kids i need to pick them up from school or take them to school by like 8 a.m 8 in the morning then uh, i'm actually like uh, Every morning, early, early at 8 a.m., I'm already in the working mode, um, or I can do some sports, or I can do some some um, other useful things. But yeah, I know that when I'm going home, then uh, I need to focus on on my family, and it's like um, puts things into your right um, priority order and perspective. Is it difficult to switch off at the end of the day? You you do have that kind of you separate clearly and work your work day from your personal life at the end. Well, I would like to say that, but I think my wife doesn't agree with that. Mm. So, <laughs> so it's uh, it's definitely uh, like work and life they're mixed up and uh, and um, always like smartphones and stuff are close to me. So so I'm checking and uh, my brain is generating ideas and thoughts and and it's like uh, you know when you're working on something that you really like and then it's like um, we can it's like a hobby. Uh, for me, it's um, yeah hard to hard to separate. Just I was thinking this morning that uh, when I, over the weekend I had um, I was lucky enough to go for a run for twice uh, uh, Saturday and Sunday, and then during this run uh, running exercises, I was able to, my brain was generating new ideas what to do at work, and mm. and uh, I was able to write them in, in Slack and emails and uh, mm. and figure out um, so like um, but at the same time I uh, I was able to to spend some time with kids and play play around and over the weekend there was a grandparents uh, day so like we visited our grand children's grandparents um, so yeah it's um, 
like uh, of course like where each of us has like uh, 24 hours uh, per day and we just need to select what we do and what we don't do it's interesting because like overwork doesn't necessarily mean kind of more productive because you do need that time to kind of clear your head mm -hmm. and think about other things in order to be more creative and maybe kind of that's one of the biggest mistakes made by first-time founders is kind of uh, uh burnout and not thinking enough mm -hmm. about their private life as well so maybe that's yeah something we can talk about in more detail that's actually a really important also for me not to spend too much time on the work uh, physically or mentally because I, I've seen many many times and many people who have gone through this you mentioned Skype and Transferways and other great companies of Estonia like they have gone through this um, burnout uh, and it, it's not nice to be there and mm. and like uh, at least in our team we're trying to prevent it uh, by allocating proper time for other things as well not only work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, you should definitely be commended for taking uh, parental leave and setting a really good example to others. Um, and I should explain to anyone kind of watching this outside Estonia that Estonia has like one of the best parental leave systems. Um, and we call it parental leave because it can be shared between kind of either parents. And yeah, that's something I really enjoyed. Like I spent um, with my fourth uh, child, I spent nine months at home when I was still like officially employed by TransferWise. And uh, it was a game changer for my career, actually, to, to take this time off. Mm. So, Tavi, your speciality has been in compliance, risk management, stopping fraud, basically all the really important stuff behind the scenes that people don't often see, but is really important for making sure the startup runs smoothly. I get the sense that it's the kind of job that kind of when it when it's going well, people don't tend to notice. And when people notice when it goes wrong, like, is it rewarding work? Yeah, it's um, about my specialities. I'm a mathematician, actually, and uh, I've studied probability theory and statistics. And and um, just by accident, I happened to to end up in the crime fighting at Skype. Um, and I remember so well in my early days at Skype, it was it was definitely a challenging job and and um, interesting. Uh, but at the same time, I felt that okay, all these cool Skypers, they're building something front end uh, or like uh, some technologies that our customers actually can use. And I was just uh, sitting on the back end, like fighting some crime and it didn't have direct impact on the customers. So it was like um, emotionally quite um, hard to motivate myself to do this work. Uh, of course, like the company helped a lot, but uh, and kind of similar in transferwise, like when it's like heavy, heavy focus on customer happiness and then price reduction and stuff like, uh, but over the time I learned um, what is the connection between this um, like, uh, like backend support functions and actually customer happiness. And when I when I realized and understood that okay, the company like part of the company's success is relying on on my team and like my own work, and and after finding these links, it was like quite easy to to motivate myself and my teammates actually to progress in in our job. And um, so by the time you left, uh, you left in 2013. Skype was the most popular voice over IP service in the world, serving one third of international phone calls. Um, and it had been bought by Microsoft for $8.5 billion. Um, Skype no longer dominates the market. And I think we've kind of, that's been highlighted more during this pandemic when people talk a lot about Zooming rather than Skyping. Um, so a bit of an awkward question um, about your former colleagues, but kind of what went wrong after you left? Why why didn't Skype continue its dominance? Um, I think um, it wasn't even after I left, but actually it happened way before I left. Mm, uh, 
I've been reading some startups founder stories and and uh, and trying to analyze how to build my own company now and what are the mistakes I could do and I should pre- prevent. And one thing is that um, like each uh, startup should should aim to create their own category of the like set of problems or problem that uh, touches people. And and obviously this this company is like the first uh, who is trying to resolve it. So Skype originally created this um, free calling uh, um, like problem or like a lack of user experience or really poor user experience over the internet calls, really expensive prices for the international calls. And Skype was like perfect to, to resolve this problem. But then like a couple of years later, when technology evolved, uh, it wasn't anymore like Skype was still dominating this market. Uh, but but actually other competitors and other technologies picked up and and they started to like um, um, not exceed Skype yet uh, but but uh, came close to that and what I think one important thing that we missed um, as a company was that we didn't uh, keep innovating new categories of problems that we could resolve if you think back to 2003 Facebook I think. Um, wasn't founded or it was founded like around these this times but definitely Facebook as a network was what much much smaller than Skype back in 2005 and so mm. so like uh, Skype had a great opportunity to dominate social network uh, space because I saw physically myself like how well connected the customers uh, we had like uh, what was the network of these customers Mm, how much they were contacting and interacting with each other. They were making video calls. They were sending pictures over the, over the chat. So we missed the um, opportunity to grow into other huge segment or sector, which was wasn't existing back then, but take the lead lead with that. Another miss or failure we had was that we didn't enter into the fintech market. Fintech market didn't exist back then, mm. <laughs> but back in 2010, maybe or even earlier. We had a super, super uh, rich uh, wallet, uh, like a different payment providers, uh, which we connected, uh, which we offered to our clients uh, across the world in multiple, like um, technical, like uh, all the bank accounts, all the cards, all the modern PayPal's, everything. Uh, and the new, new payment methods came up and everything was integrated to Skype uh, wallet. So there was great opportunity to, to start do- dominating the whole online payments and online Mm, uh, like a financial markets, not only like uh, not only organizing payments, but actually storing the f- funds. Uh, we had a currency exchange happening, so transfers um, kind of transfers happened. Maybe thanks to the fact that the Skype wasn't too innovative back then, mm. <laughs> and and so like the, the like um, the, there were like I think one or two other these kind of great misses of of the, like taking the lead in the new area where we had core technology, we had super strong engineers, we had super super big customer base who was like uh, eager to take these new things up uh, but uh, but we were f- focused only on calling and uh, like we hit the ceiling at some stage so we couldn't exceed from that it's interesting so skype didn't move into um being a uh, financial technology company but you did move into your person yourself personally did move into transferwise a financial technology company and i guess it's a very similar story for you and it's also like a three-year-old estonian startup um that was about to kind of really take off um, but I guess going working in financial technology on these kind of issues must mean all the stakes are so much higher. Well, yeah, for me personally, the stakes were higher because, like, I felt um, many, many years that okay, I had had done my career in Skype already, but I really couldn't see another company in Estonia which I could join because, like, uh, mm, like Skype was still so cool, so ambitious. Uh, 
Uh, so great place to work so i thought that okay i will like work there for the next 20 years or 30 years mm. so and of course i knew that uh, there was like a long list of cool startups coming up around me uh, but they felt a bit too risky at the time when it was it was 2013 when my former colleague from skype uh, she she called me and said that David, there was uh, some some risk and crime fighting work uh, transfer ways that you could could do for us and, and again she invited me to uh, for the interview and and it was um, like back then we had 40 people working in Tallinn transfer office so it was literally much much uh, smaller than the early early days uh, Skype which I joined so mm. it was like um, huge risk for me personally of course like I knew Tavet uh, really well from my, my Skype days and I had some idea who Christo was uh, founders uh, both founders of, of TransferWays mm. uh, but still like I wasn't um, and the internal brand of the company was super strong but but when I joined um, the company and then during my first uh, working week I I was just thinking, okay, what I'm what I'm going to do in my role, and just I can open all the doors of the banks and everything, and I say that I'm from TransferWays and they must know me. And then Christos said that David, like, just you need to realize that we're a tiny, tiny company, no one knows about us. <laughs> like, and it was like came as a shock to me uh, because like having this um, Skype background and and mm. uh, great um, story of TransferWays in front of me, I thought that okay, come on, like, it's the same thing. Like uh, we dominate the world. Yeah. Um, but it was like nowhere close to that. So that was like a bit of shock that, okay, I joined a really, really early phase company. Yeah. It's something we talked about in a previous episode with Ryan Rano about how to tell your company's story. And we kind of, we realized that we all live in a bubble. And even though we're kind of probably sick and tired of our own company story, kind of, we have to tell it over and over and over again. Um, actually, just on TransferWise, who has actually done a really good job of telling their story, how they solved the problem. So they offer banking, but they're not a bank. Um, um, they're a uh, payment institution, not a credit institution. And I think the founders recently said kind of they probably will never become a bank. Maybe would you be able to clarify for people listening? Like, what's the difference? Why why isn't TransferWise a bank but st still offers banking? Well, it depends on like uh, what the term bank uh, means to you. Um, I like when people are thinking about banked and it's a pretty abstract thing uh, it's actually a list of financial services that i'm getting from some organization so i want to make a payments i want to store um, funds uh, i want to convert currency maybe i just want to take some loan maybe i want to make some investments so there is like long list of services that a bank uh, is offering and now the question is like um, what kind of services transferize is offering to its customer there's a card also like international card and and for me like um, mentally transfer is, is a bank mm -hmm. uh, because I can do a lot of uh, my financial operations over there if I want to make my investments of course like I through transferways I cannot um, uh, transferways is not investing my money or if I want to take the loan I cannot take this loan from transferways I need to like uh, lease lease a car then I need to go to the real bank what, <laughs> what mm -hmm. I'm using uh, so in that regards I think uh, Christo and Tavat they are smart enough that, um, to distinguish the communication um and, and actual licensing like because in the in the financial entity licensing world there are like multiple levels um, of licensing that you can apply for you can be just a payment institution which is doing payments but you're not allowed to keep 
anyone's money mm. so that's the lowest category or actually there are in Estonia there are even lower categories mm. <laughs> then you can be a cryptocurrency provider so all this um, blockchain technology and, and these people when they're applying for license then usually they're starting with that then you can be e-money e-money uh, institution which is like yes you can hold some some funds of your customers mm, and then like uh, in the end there is a bank uh, which like uh, is also uh, like a retail bank retail bank which is offering to consumers a lot of things but also there is investment banking and there is a corporate banking so in that regards it's um it's not about licenses but it's about financial services and more importantly what kind of problems that they see they can resolve for mm-hmm. their customers like uh, starting with a um, uh, current exchange and remittance like they they found out that okay there is a massive problem spec because like uh, banks are charging um, like 10 times more than than the fair pricing would be for these services the customer experience was really poor so and in the same way mm-hmm. like they did uh, something very similar with the card like um, payment card businesses uh, usage uh, and then some other services that they keep adding so like if um, if they at some day if they figure out that okay loan like giving loan or, or lease, leasing is um, super poor and they see how they can improve it in like 10 times in multiple different directions then I, I believe that they could do also the banking the full banking over there but yeah it's not a question is it bank or not but it's mm. more about like what are the services and what is the real value that they're delivering to the customers and then Toby you left TransferWise two years ago um, and with your CV like you could have gone anywhere um, you decided to build your own startup what was your motivation for that? Well yeah actually it was um, I went to home first like I didn't, didn't go and start my own company uh, as I said before I was on paternity leave and I didn't have uh, direct plans to leave TransferWise um, I just had to take time off to to recover from the intensive um, three-year four-year period um, mm. Over there, and uh, but during the time off, it sounds like it's not wasn't really off. I was spending uh, taking care for my family and and like my little daughter for a long time. And but during that time, many people, ex colleagues from Skype times and some friends started to reach out to me to ask um, my friendly advice about their financial risk levels, uh, like of their companies, their banks, uh, their fintechs. They asked, uh, can I help them to? to reduce the risk of real money laundering that they might face. And it wasn't the case that uh, that they wanted me to help them to be compliant or to, to meet the regulator expectations, but they were really worried that, okay, if something really happens um, in my bank, can I really find it out? And uh, it's something, it's, it's not about fraud or this card fraud, which is like quite trivial in this world, but more about like if there are really large like uh, dirty money is moving through my bank mm. i really want to know that and they didn't feel comfortable that can they really find or can their systems find or can their people find it and they just they asked me to help uh, and of course like it was, i had some free time and i, I started to help one of them and, uh, and another of them and like uh, accidentally i had like uh, many companies i was helping um, just with my skills uh, and knowledge um, over that time and and then I realized that, okay, if there is this kind of demand in the market that really, really smart people come to me and ask for my advice, then maybe I could package it and maybe I could build my own business around it. So, and um, and I had, I had been dreaming about creating my own company and becoming enterprise for a long time. And it felt the right moment that, okay, I have time to prepare my thinking, like build up my services. Mm, and I don't have like, um, like a, 
hard commitments um, in front of dancer race because I was already um, like I had been away from from daily work for 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 five months, mm-hmm. which meant that actually my old team, like different teams that I was responsible for, they were able to handle their mm-hmm. things without me. So I didn't feel that I'm locked uh, mm-hmm. into the transfer race for for anymore. Yeah. So your company now is Salve, and so what what does Salve offer? Um, depends on who is asking mm. <laughs> like uh, if if you're mm, if we're in the sales mode uh, then we're giving one answer if we're in the cool interview mode we're in the other <laughs> i'm giving the other other answer but basically we are like um, uh, selling um, technology which helps um, banks and other financial institutions uh, uh, to beat the financial crime which might impact them and then like beating the financial crime it's it's our mission what our exact products uh, and technologies we're offering we don't know yet of course like we have a couple of uh, products out uh, people are using them companies are using them already but we're constantly seeking for um, newer and better technologies which would be more effective in mm-hmm. this crime fighting so in short like I could say that yes, we're we're offering um, SaaS uh, technologies for the anti-money laundering uh, back office platform, which covers um, like uh, customer risk assessment, uh, sanction screenings. The, each customer has to be checked against the sanction lists. Uh, it covers um, transaction monitoring. Uh, like every transaction needs to be monitored uh, to measure the risk. Um, and also we're we're offering. Uh, um, data sharing platform or knowledge sharing platform for the banks uh, so they can exchange information with each other about suspicious customers so these are all the like tools that we're building but yeah like more importantly it's it's like providing technical um, products which help um, like our customers to, to beat financial crime and that's something which has been missing from that market mm. um, for a long time because the, the whole focus goes on the regulatory side of things like can i like am i really exp- like meeting the expectations of the regulators am i doing the tick boxing properly mm, like uh, which is also important like otherwise they couldn't have license and they couldn't um, uh, couldn't keep their business running but it has become evident over the last couple of years that being compliant is not enough fulfilling legal expectations it's necessary but not sufficient to beat financial crime because criminals know really well like these are smart people they're like uh, um, like um, organizations um, the criminal organizations who are focused on money laundering they're not stealing the money because like people who are like uh, gaining um, like collecting criminal proceeds from the drug trafficking or human trafficking or or some some other like illegal weapon trading so these are the people who are generating the like criminal proceeds but actually people who are laundering them these are completely different groups these are super smart people they're top level lawyers engineers data science people and and these people know really really well what are what are the legal clauses what are the things that banks need to uh, do and and uh, also of course they have figured out how to bypass these these limitations so that's why i'm saying that it's it's being compliant is not enough because like criminals know really well how to be compliant mm. uh, but uh, so far banks and fintechs haven't focused too much on on finding um, like criminal proceeds out of the like out from the customer base who has been already accepted who is like active and who is like uh, flying under the radar 
uh, of the compliance regulatory requirements. And at the moment, kind of uh, a lot of companies affected, they're trying to do this in-house, are they? Well, like yes, like starting companies are usually trying to do it in-house, uh, mm, which kind of makes sense that you cannot buy everything in. Mm, for bigger players, they are using some old legacy technology providers. Mm. Both of these these approaches have their own downsides because if you're a small company and trying to build something new from scratch um, next to your core services, then there is question of prioritization, question of knowledge. You don't have enough resource to build high quality products. Mm. Mm. When you're using old school technology providers, then these are not scalable. If you're like trying to innovate and like with your banking services, you're coming up with a new um, types of payments. There are faster payments now here in, in Europe. There are like um, APIs, um, open banking, uh, um, all, all these other like e-wallets. E e um, and these old technologies which are in the market are not... Um, able to support this kind of new financial technologies mm. and and more importantly as i said before that that like this classical aml tools which are embedded in the banking system they are not enough because these banks and fintechs are still working in the silos like each mm. company is independent they are having their own products is it like are they good or bad products it's a different question uh, but criminals they are controlling the whole network they are seeing what are the like financial service providers in the market. Criminals are deciding, uh, the criminal groups are planning uh, through whom they should send their proceeds between them, the banks uh, um, or between the fintechs. And and like, even mathematically, it's not possible to to have the like, single entities to fight against the network. So like there's a need to create the network uh, which can can beat the criminals network. So so that's um, like second level of like technologies that we're now building is like helping um, banks and fintechs to build a network which um, helps to beat the criminals uh, uh, networking. So this is fundamentally about data, is it? You have a better overview of the data in order to spot the patterns across the kind of industry being targeted. Yes, data. That's 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 the only thing I can do actually, because like mm -hmm. back from my banking career and Skype career and and uh, transferways, I was enjoying the position that I had a holistic view of, um, especially in, in Skype and transferways, I had a like, global view of um, payments, uh, customers, events which are happening, and I was able to connect the points between different regions, different customer groups, different. So it was like a super, super fun and luxury position to work with a really huge databases. Mm. But now, like I realized that most of organizations don't have this luxury. They are working in the local branch data or like local country data, and that's it. They, they cannot join data points um, across multiple banks or across multiple regions, or maybe even across multiple products of their own internal uh, data and um, and yeah like finding patterns finding um, collisions uh, like finding uh, missing data points um, some conflicts of data and so on so there are like multiple things that this uh, unified data can bring to the table the main problem until now has been that like um, thanks to we have bank secrecy act and we have gdpr which uh, are like really critical assessing what kind of technologies um, should be used or what kind of exact conditions this data can be shared between institutions. That's where things get more difficult. That it's, it's, it's not only about data, but me as a customer of the bank, as I said before, 
I I must um, must be, I want to trust the bank and I want to trust that they are not giving my data away to other banks just to do some random checks. Mm. So so uh, th- this has to be like really critically thought through. Like what data points and what kind of technology and what kind of cases can be handed shared between these um, entities. And um, I've seen your office is um, the South office is right next to uh, Transfoys here in Tallinn. So have you you kept good relations? Yes, definitely. It uh, rem- reminds me. I think it was a Christmas card that we draw on the on our windows because I was just literally watching watching uh, in into Transfoys uh, windows and we like uh, prepared a large post poster which we pulled uh, out uh, behind our window and like. Uh, like uh, sent greetings to our old colleagues uh, at TransferWise and it got some fun but but yeah it's definitely really good to be part of the campus uh, in Veerainen Street which is next to TransferWise next to Bolt which is another other huge uh, cool company and many other firms over there and just um, to have a chat with old colleagues uh, mm. uh, over the over the lunch uh, gather some ideas uh, challenges uh, meet um, some people who want to invest or meet some other like other cool startups who need investment uh, or advice so this a small ecosystem of like a companies uh, who are working physically in the same area it's like extremely important so where did the finance come from for self you mean the investments uh, yeah mm-hmm. yeah it was interesting um, as I said, we started originally with offering our services, not our technology, mm. and this um, it was like uh, maybe misleading for me because I saw that the offering services brings in a lot of easy money, because there are like uh, large companies who are who have big problems and they are willing to spend a lot of money to get someone who advises them or helps them to resolve these problems with the skills. So basically, we earned quite a lot of. Um, uh, like revenue in early days when we were offering uh, mm. services mm. and originally it was like bootstrapping for, for us like we were um, like from these earnings that we made we were able to build um, technology and products uh, on the back end uh, at some stage we decided that okay it's not enough um, it's not anymore okay to offer services because it doesn't allow us to focus fully on the product development and uh, and without this uh, split or swift uh, we cannot uh, build a really scalable companies, so we had to get rid of the services and we had to get rid of the revenue that we got from these services. At this point, uh, we had um, some prototype ready already, like uh, some, some people were using the product and then we went to real investors. Actually, I went to investors earlier before that, like I, I had like six months month forecast that okay, like or nine month forecast that by that time we will run out of money. So I just started to chat and introduce myself uh, um, in various um, investor communities here in Estonia. Again, we have a lot of angel investors who are coming from Skype and TransferWise and other places. We have uh, VCs um, who are like um, relatively new, like a couple of years old. Um, some of them are older as well. Then I reached out to London community again, like uh, all the, um, the our current uh, current investors from London, Seedcamp and Passion Capital, but like tens of other VCs. I reached out to them just to tell who I am, what I'm doing. Um, same happened with Germany, German market, VC market. Uh, they they actually found us, uh, not vice versa, but uh, from Berlin and and Frankfurt people who are mm. looking. So and at uh, some stage I was just. Uh, 
meeting with them I didn't raise money I just wanted to introduce uh, somehow I realized that the story of like Skype and transfer race and crime fighting and our mission it really and also the team by that time we had I think 10-15 people in the team strength of the team it really caught people's attention and and um, it was a quite no-brainer for them to say that yes I want to invest in you mm. and then the story started to circle around and, and at some stage um, I think three months after I started this VC discussions then people started to call me and, and write me and in, inbound uh, contact um, volume was pretty huge and still is pretty huge uh, so just um, I think the key was to create some some attention and some FOMO effect in the in the VC market and and after that um, I didn't need to find myself any more investors but they found me and then it was like a question of making the best best um, selection from them. How important is it to get experience in other startups before you launch your own because I do know some people who just want to go straight for it kind of at a young age mm -hmm. or without too much startup experience themselves and you know sometimes they do do well um, mm -hmm. what's your advice on that should people spend more time working for other startups seeing what kind of problems how they're solving problems first? Well yeah there are definitely some super talents like uh, who can build um, really like massive uh, companies like um, from scratch without having any experience but like um, uh, Bolt founder Marcus Willick uh, um, is a great mm. example mm. Uh, Verif founder Karel mm. Kotkas is another example so there are these kind of talents uh, yeah. um, but not all of the people are like that <laughs> and then of course like we would like to be maybe uh, so for me like in my case I was spending like almost 15 years working as a specialist uh, team lead uh, uh, in the small and large organizations and it's not about like working in startup uh, before founding your own company but it's more about uh, resolving really complex problems uh, preferably in the global scale mm, seeing how teams are grown around you how the culture is built uh, how difficult challenges are getting resolved so it doesn't need to be startup per se but uh, but definitely it helps mm. and and all these learnings i gathered um, consciously or unconsciously into my head uh, from my previous career um, helped me to to kick off my own company so it's, it's like constant learning ability to learn also one old um, my old uh, old uh, team lead uh, from Skype times, like he said that like, it's extremely important uh, to find out who are like um, really smart and experienced people. And I was trying to find out based on what he's doing that. And he said that okay, uh, he said it to me that uh, okay, I had uh, enough uh, academic um, like um, like um, mathematics background so I can think in the abstract uh, level, which is coming from university. It doesn't come from the from the job exercise, right? If you st like study some social sciences um, uh, or, or like um, more softer sciences it's much harder to, to get, grasp this uh, more abstract thinking but people who are coming from math uh, physics chemistry so they have um, they can think in the, like border uh, like um, a bit broader um, sense so that's one aspect uh, other one is actually having some technical expertise or some good level of technical expertise writing the code writing sql doing data analytics processing things so that's the second necessary skill and third one is that you need to have some some subject matter expertise from some area mm -hmm. like i used to gather it from the crime fighting some other people are gathering from multiple different places and and based on these three pillars um, 
I, uh, I I built up my own company basically, mm. and and um, like uh, yes, there are some things you can gather during the high school or university, um, but some things um, like. Uh, getting subject matter expertise it just physically takes time and and the more complex situation you're working in um the, the higher your expertise will be and these are this is like this is something that you cannot gather before you start uh, uh, working in real companies mm-hmm. so that that regards like it's um, more certain if you're not a talent like this couple of guys i mentioned uh then it's lower risk and more like a more like higher confidence that you get into like a good company you're able to build your own company if you have this kind of um really rich uh, uh, package of, of things uh, that you can take along mm. and you know it's interesting because before this episode i thought i'd ask a few people like what they thought are kind of the biggest mistakes first-time founders make and one thing that comes up a lot is kind of choosing the wrong people choosing the wrong people to be your co-founder or kind of as your first hires and i guess you've kind of skipped that process and that kind of you've got you're so much part of the industry and have and know so many people kind of working on the same issues that you know who are the right people to choose and uh you know even the best interviewer in the world with the, the best character uh, judge in the world kind of isn't necessarily going to see what that person's like when they're actually working at the startup but if you've already got so much background of working with these people then that mm-hmm. must be so valuable definitely it helps uh, like my co-founder jeff i he was my i was able to get him into my team for a third time actually <laughs> like mm. more than 10 years ago i was hired wow. i hired him into my skype uh, data fraud, like a um, fraud data team then I, a few hours later, I convinced him to join the transfer race team, and uh, and another few hours, a few years later, I was was uh, lucky that I managed to convince him to join me as a founder, co-founder, and same with other co-founders, Sergey. Like we had, uh, uh, like uh, worked at uh, transfer race in the same team or like uh, neighbor teams for many many years. I know exactly who this this person was and why I why I know that he can help me. Mm. But also, it's uh, I think one learning. Um, is that I have learned uh, about myself, like what are my weaknesses uh, when working with people, and in order to okay, I can try to improve and and like uh, reduce these weaknesses, or I can um, focus on my strengths and and gather some people who can actually cover my weaknesses. So we have like super talented. Uh, Mm, cultural builder Kairi, who is like has been, she has done it in the Nortal, which is another local great uh, technology company. She did it in Rancho Race, and now she's she's doing it at, at Salve as well. So that's definitely some set of skills that I'm I'm not able to grasp myself, uh, and then she's so good in that. Uh, and in similar way, like I've been lo- trying to find other people who can complement uh, me and other co-founders in our missing skill set, and that's that's definitely very helpful. And yeah, of course, like thanks to the fact that I've been in the market and, and in this industry for a long time, I know by design like who are the people that I want to get into my team. But maybe even more importantly, these people know what to expect from me also. Mm-hmm. Like. If I would know them, but they wouldn't know anything about me, then it would be super hard to hire them. But if I have proven to them um, in my previous um, uh, career that okay, what I'm doing, what I'm strong and what I'm weak in, then they also know what to expect from me and the team I'm creating and they can see what, how they can collaborate and interact with others. And, and how do you incentivize them? Do you discuss kind of share options and things like that? Or how do you, yeah, what do you offer when you're building your team? 
there is a list of things. Um, yeah, one thing is the team itself. For like, especially in the early phases, we have twenty, twenty-five people working with us. And and so you have twenty-five right now for South. Yeah, I think mm. twenty full time, but um, but there are different uh, mm. people who are supporting us part time as well. Mm. And and uh, like the team itself, like when I had two people, four people, five people working, then. Uh, like uh, if I was inviting new people, then they were assessing also that like um, is the team something that they would like to join. Um, second part, the mission, the stuff that I really want to do, I care about uh, like uh, reducing the financial crime in the world. So they they really like people who really link to that that mm-hmm. mission um, get a greater boost to join. Uh, thirdly, the internal culture of the team like uh, as, as we talked about uh, like my four four kids i'm not the only one who has kids like most of the team have their families um, mm. they they want to and they need to to spend uh, time with them with their homes so again like we're like um, trying to avoid this overworking uh, trying to spend more time for ourselves and for our health and families okay. um, so and like many other how we interact with each other how flat we are um, so this matters and definitely there is like financial component uh, and and uh, like I was I wasn't still I'm quite um, kind when it comes to the option sharing and and of course like everyone who joins the startup they prefer like they assume that they get some shares um, and it's not about like it's not about extra salary but it's about feeling that okay I'm contributing th- into this as, as my own company mm. and I'm also like mentally as an entrepreneur and I want to do things which are right for my customers and and um, it's not about like the more I give the more I get back but it's more about like uh, like each um, team member if they get um, like amount of company uh, which they really feel that look, it's um, decent or like it's uh, managed meets their expectations then that's that's definitely and the fourth or fifth component is is just a regular salary as well so again i'm repeating that we're hiring we have some students also or some people who are coming straight out straight from university mm. but most of the team they have been working either from in the banks or transfer rates or skype they have their families so their salary expectations are not uh, too low anymore so they're mm-hmm. expecting to get some decent salary and um, and again that's um, that comes with the um, we're not um, overpaying and like trying to buy people uh, like over from from other companies but clearly i, I as a like father and family lead myself i feel that i know that how how much money it takes to put the kids into school and like to build a house and stuff so we need to meet these expectations as well in order to yeah build so there is like there isn't one try like a driving factor but it's about like many many things that people care about uh, and and then they can make a decision that yes i want to join this team and Tavi, I remember when I started my first company quite a while back now, I the thing I was always told was you need a business plan. That's the most important thing. And I was writing this business plan, kind of kind of writing down all these assumptions which are completely untested on the market and everything changed after you actually launched a company. So I find it interesting that kind of like for you, like a clear like overview of the products that you're developing wasn't as important as testing the market and understanding that there are actually people who will pay money for your services yeah I st- actually the starting point for me was that there was demand in the market for something or for my skills it wasn't about unknown product it was demand for my skills 
and then my challenge was like how I can put my skills into the scalable product mm. and I thought in the beginning that it's pretty easy because like I I had done it before in TransferWise so I knew that okay what were the needs of the customers what were the needs of the regulators what were the needs of my own team for the product that I was building so I even when it came to the product um, design and building phase I didn't I was listening to customers definitely but uh, I kind of quite consciously knew what I wanted to build maybe it was a mistake uh, maybe not I should have listened to the customers a bit more maybe I was building something that uh, um, like should have been in market already for like three years ago and and maybe I should have focused on this uh, data sharing platform already in the first grow because like now we're building it almost from scratch um, so it's um, um, still it comes back to the mission and the team for me because like if we set the goal like what we want to achieve in the end then selecting the right product it's one of the this is one of the business process like testing validating getting feedback from customers innovating figuring out new things mm. and same with the business plan like it's definitely if we're building something that's valuable for the customers then in one way or another we will get uh, some some uh, money and revenue back from that and we can keep building our product uh, forward as well and secondly the team like if we, I, I would have a weak team i couldn't do this i could uh, by design i wouldn't be able to deliver this mission so these are the two critical starting components and then rest comes um, through the hard work so what kind of plan should startup founders be putting together these days because you know you can google um startup business plan and find kind of lots of boring templates is there a smarter way to to put that kind of thing together and yeah well uh, probably i'm repeating many blog posts <laughs> like uh, it's still about like uh, finding out uh, what is the problem that uh, that they want to resolve mm-hmm. mm, there are maybe two ways like uh, like um, can is there um, existing market the existing tools and products and do i want to make it better like 10 times better than the existing stuff is doing or am i able to create um, new category of things as, as we talked about skype like who created uh, international uh, like internet calling uh, or facebook who created social networking or google who who created the like information gathering from internet so like these are like um definitely it's much more motivating and opportunistic to build their own category define it which means that you understand what is the problem that uh, that exists but no one has been able to verbalize it even and when you verbalize it and, and make it clear for people and, and then start building your products around that problem set, this is something that um, will increase likelihood of success because like it's, if you're working with um, taking old, like if you're trying to improve the existing system, like uh, just doing it better, you take one legacy provider and other legacy provider and building some cool API between them. Yes, there is some like some people who would pay for that. But this is not the way how Skype was built or how TransferWise was built. And uh, like uh, not the way how I'm, I'm trying to build. Uh, that was my, my learning. Or, but as I said, like, it's, it's hard to say is it a mistake or was it a mistake or not. But I started to fix something that I saw was broken. Mm. And I was like coming up with a better product. But um, originally it didn't come from something completely different. And when startups are very young, they can be very flexible and everyone knows each other. Um, 
over time, I guess you get people don't know each other and you get more rigid processes and protocols and approvals of how to do things. Is it inevitable that kind of as startups grow, they become more complex and more kind of process based? Or is there a way to kind of keep that flexible culture as you grow? Well, there is no yes or no answer for that. Uh, I think it's um, if you do it in the right way, then it, the growth is not that painful. Mm -hmm. uh, like. Uh, if you are keeping your like cultural things or cultural basics or if you're trying to to keep them in place for a long time um then um, then the company itself like uh, like is more stable in that regard like i think again when thinking back to skype and transfer based then in that regards they were like uh, selected very very different um, routes uh, skype's uh, internal culture changed very rapidly after mm. uh, i think the sales to ebay and then sales to silver lake and then sales to to microsoft and it um, kind of somehow became more and more corporate uh, and the internal culture changed um, quite rapidly like visible the face of the of the Skype was still cool and young and free food and like a lot of parties and stuff, but actually work-wise, uh, it became more and more like boring. Whereas in transfer-wise, like thanks to the fact um, um, that this culture was built in a different way, uh, still transfer-wise has today I think 22, 23,000 people, mm, and it's not as cool and disruptive as like seven years ago when I joined them. But still, it's um, comparing to Skype at the same uh, same age or same size. The transfer is way way more cool and cooler and startupish um, than than Skype. So again, like mm. um, which doesn't mean that it's like as same as like company with uh, fifty people, but it's still possible to keep this this human friendly culture if you focus on that. But it needs focus and stability. And uh, Tavi, like data has always been kind of really important uh, for your job, kind of particularly in kind of compliance and risks. But then data is also useful for marketing and product development. Um, some startup founders might think they don't have the time kind of or resources, the skills to analyze all the data they need to. Kind of what, are, what are companies missing out from by not having a clear overview of their own data? I always, when I'm advising myself the young companies, I'm asking them not to overprioritize this data stuff. Okay. <laughs> like it's a, it's mm. rather like a tool, not the thing in itself. Like um, people, I've met many many startup founders who have come to me that, and said that they are building some BI platform, business intelligence platform, mm. because their investors said that they should do some data magic. And then I was like asking, okay, why do you want to do this, or why why do you think it's it's, it's why did they ask it, and why do you think uh, you need to do this? And and in the end, it boils down to the question like, uh, what are you trying to achieve? Or like, if you're trying to understand your customer worries, uh, maybe you know them already, or or like, um, if you want to understand the behavior of your customers, like, why do you want to know the behavior of the customers? And asking, um, okay, what is the the challenge that they have, or what are the things that they, I don't know? And then um, figuring out, okay, how or from where I can find answers. And yes, data is like my favorite place where to look for the answers, but it might not be the only one. So quite often this data stuff is like over-prioritized uh, because um, you need to trust your gut feeling also. You mm -hmm. need to like uh, the most innovative things are not um, grown from 
customers feedback but they are grown from the intuition and um, and like uh, some like a risk appetite of the founders themselves and you don't have any data to prove that you're going in the right direction but you mm -hmm. just need to believe and build and then maybe validation comes a year two years later so it's um, definitely if you if you are in the position where you need to look for answers and you have decent data and and you think that okay like i know what are the questions i should ask from this data then for sure like it's um, people should just open their databases or like external public databases and and log into this and then try to write some sql don't hire data scientists uh, too early definitely like, again that was my learning um, from transfer is also like uh, we were quite um, against hiring data scientists because like everyone who was building their product they had to know uh, had to be able to dig into data themselves so creating this um, separate siloed roles like it sounds attractive in the beginning mm -hmm. i will hire, hire a super strong data scientist so he will resolve all my problems but in real life i'm distancing uh, myself from from um, ability to to figure out what's going on it's it's like very similar to there are two things like mathematics and uh, and uh, legal environment where people think that okay i haven't studied math in university or i didn't study laws and in, in university and i need to hire lawyer or i need to hire mathematician or data scientist mm -hmm. and if, if this thinking dominates um, you too much then you're limiting yourself too much so go into data see what's what's there people are able to use excel at least or private tables or draw some graphs and and uh, and especially starting companies never have this amount of data that you should apply some some real hardcore math PhD skills on the top of that. That will come as a relief to some people listening who think they don't have enough data, but yeah, it's yeah. over measuring can be a problem too. Then it's like a, maybe somehow similar to um, developing a code. Uh, mm. Like uh, people say that I haven't studied C plus plus or Java in university, so I cannot build my own stuff but actually this writing things into algorithm or like into into the programmable code is just um, maybe the very last last uh, phase of the software development first you need to figure out uh, what you're building speak with customers validate uh, and draw some like images uh, um, write algorithm down in the like uh, written english uh, just a logical way what this stuff should do defining the user stories and and like when you have done all the prep work then writing it into code um, that's maybe the easiest part uh, if you know exactly what to build so mm -hmm. so it's the same with data like if you have gone through this whole thinking uh, procedure what are you trying to look um in the end um, yeah you do it yourself or get someone to help to do but but this this data science itself shouldn't dominate the direction of your business what was the biggest challenge for you kind of moving into the ceo role for the first time it was um good question <laughs> i haven't even thought about this as a challenging problem mm -hmm. um like i've i've saying i've been saying that the smallest company i was um, i have been before founding my own company it was like 20 well, so 50 people uh, transfer race was 50 people so i knew how how to grow how company grows from 50 to 2000 and from 100 to 2000 but i didn't know how to grow it from zero to 50 so that was like mm. the blind spot for me so i'm still in the middle of that um, and and uh, i'm learning um why it was quite 
but the, in the end, so far it has been still quite straightforward for me. And one one thing I'm really thinking is like people get surprised or discuss at least here in Estonia that why Estonian startups success rate is quite high comparing to Silicon Valley maybe where people are like trying out it doesn't work let's start another one over here people are taking more like maybe more, more responsibility or like they're taking more more time to test and validate and rebuild it again and and they're more committed to the plan and and um, and uh, I think it's coming from um, our roots like for people um like it's like farmers like owning your your farm or like uh, being like a master of your like your own little or small um, um home like i'm living in countryside i have my own farm okay i'm not growing there anything but but uh, I'm, I'm acting as a like as a, as a king or like, like mm-hmm. master of this place so i, I see that if something is broken i need to fix it uh, if something uh, like um, should be built here i need to put my time and effort and take responsibility to build it i need to prioritize constantly i have i have limited amount of resources okay i have a lot of interest groups myself like my family my friends uh, um, so where i should make these investments mm, I, I know that each um, building has their own life cycle um like um and and this kind of mentality like how to be a master in your farmhouse uh, that's quite easily convertible into the building your own company because you have limited resources you have limited skills resources you need to be very smart like where, where you put your focus effort uh, um, you cannot simply throw it away because because like there is on the back of of our brains there is like long-term thinking that if i throw it away like what happens next or like uh, it's not that wild cowboyish thinking that okay i throw it away see what happens next mm. so this kind of uh, susta- sustainability and master thinking something that i think has helped me at least uh, to build my own company so i'm not taking as a like um, yeah, let's see what happens. Mm. Uh, and how how useful was kind of Estonia to the success of like Skype and transfer wise? What, what do you think Estonia offered them? And why did you decide to kind of start your company now in Estonia as well? Well, it's um, in one hand, um, concentration of the like um, smart technology people. It's not the um, number of them, but it's about uh, like frequency or, or like uh, closeness of them. Mm. So like uh, we all know the story that okay, core founders of the of the Skype were the classmates. Um, they used to go into same same class. Um, at at Transferways founders Christian David, they met in London because they were part of the small Estonian community. Yes, they're physically in London, but but the small Estonian community kept together. And it's like uh, if I if I would compare with the like Indian community in in London, there is like. Um, it's like a thousand times bigger probably mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they don't know all the indians who are living here mm-hmm. there so it was like easier for them to find each other and then to come up with the with the plans um uh, the like size of the market it's for me it's like super i re- really enjoy that all the banks are like um, ceos of the banks are close to me um like health of the central bank um, ministries uh, everyone is like so reachable so open so positive people are mentally they are even the government sector they are ready to to innovate things um, um friendliness openness like uh, knowing uh, people through the network um 
thanks to the fact that we have been in the same school or like our kids go to the same cl- class or we have worked in the same company or whatever, we're live, live nearby. Uh, so this kind of small, con- really well-connected network, that definitely helps. And yeah, now the huge amount of um, uh, startup expertise uh, also like feeds uh, new companies. We didn't have it um, back when Skype was founded. It was first time with the transferwise. It was like second generation, like pipe drive and and others. Now we're like in the middle of third generation, where like the people who have left transferwises and and like uh, pipe drives, they're building building their own companies. And but all these um, former colleagues um, are really supportive and just mm. like like constant feeling of friends and family and like I can always of course like a member of seed camp seed camp family is really strong in um or seed camp nation is really strong in in europe i can always ask questions from them but here in estonia it's like at least as probably it's a bigger bigger like a family like a nation national group of people who actually are so supportive in terms of like advice contacts uh, funding uh, experience whatever like it's um yeah th- that's what that's that's gr- gr- growing the new ecosystem here so and tell me my final question is like um what are your future plans for salve is there anything kind of you have in the works that you want to tell us about yeah as i've hinted a couple of times there is um i really see this um like a network based uh, crime which is um, driving all these criminal proceeds through the banks and uh, and from our side, uh, like we are building uh, like a network um, network driven crime fighting uh, platform, which will ultimately change. I truly believe that it will will add like um, uh, like top top layer crime fighting capabilities to the banks and fintechs, and then ultimately that will will probably change uh, the balances. Like uh, like uh, that's a technology which which at least. Uh, would allow banks to be on the equal level with the criminal gangs, mm. which today they are definitely behind because they, they cannot speak with each other and there is no this kind of common common uh, knowledge uh, base that they could share. But but uh, like we are in the middle of building um, and piloting uh, new uh, technology, which hopefully will change the, the life uh, of the criminals much, much harder. And then the, for the banks, uh, it will simplify the, the, the fight for them. Good. Uh, Tavi, we're really honored that you came in here to discuss Salve with us and, and give your advice. Um, you know, you're doing really great work, uh, setting a good example and also kind of helping our business environment become even more trusted and helping other companies as well. Um, so thank you very much. I, you know, biggest takeaway for me is the idea that, yeah, yeah. You know, there's an advantage to going to work for other startups first, getting experience. It's not necessary, but it's certainly very valuable. Um, But most important thing is just get on and do it. Kind of like if you're going to start a startup, then you need to kind of start earning revenues and test that actually people will pay for your services before you kind of write really detailed plans. Um, Thank you very much. Um, And what is your website for people who want to know more and might be interested in your services? Yes, you can look at uh, salv.com, S-A-L-V.com. Simple simple enough to to check what's what's going on over there. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me here. And uh, you've been listening to the Startup in Estonia podcast produced by Startup Estonia. Um, and we'd love to hear what you think of the show. Uh, so use the hashtag Startup in Estonia on social media. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.